You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm B.A. Parker. I take great pride in being a fangirl on the internet. To obsess over something with other nerds is the ultimate joy. My very first fangirl obsession was this R&B boy band called Immature. They were three 13-year-old boys in flowy clothes on a beach promising never to lie to me. All while one was wearing a very fashionable eye patch. The internet was still in its early form back then. I couldn't really share that love online yet. Later, when I fell in love with NSYNC, I'd have to wait 30 minutes for a GeoCities fan site to download. But from there, online fandom only grew in size and fervor. And fangirls, we shaped the internet itself. Caitlin Tiffany's new book is all about that history and influence. It's called Everything I Need I Get From You, How Fangirls Created the Internet as We Know It. Caitlin's a fangirl, too, of One Direction. You know, Harry, Liam, Niall, Lewis, and Zane. Caitlin and I talked about fan mobilization, how Tumblr transformed internet fan culture, and what the One Direction, or 1D fandom, says about the power of fangirls online. Here's our chat. I am curious, like, what what made you want to write a book about fandom? Like, why was this, like, the book for you? As I became a culture reporter at The Verge, started writing more and more about fandom and, you know, lots of other internet culture topics as well. But it was a really interesting time to be learning about the internet and about how to be a journalist because it was also the midpoint of Gamergate. So that was like a pretty rough and tumble education um, in just like how internet movements can go totally sideways. Instantly they dived into find where she lives, finds where where all these people live. Uh, What are we going to do about her? Can we hack her email? Like instantly. It's like you're just constantly surrounded by nothing but hate. Also how people who get involved in those movements justify them to themselves and how captivating the narratives around, around them can be and how important subcultures become to people's sense of identity and worldview and their sense of morality. After Gamergate, that kind of went pretty seamlessly into the, the rise of MAGA and the alt-right and incels and all of these different kind of like fringe politically disturbing subcultures there was a real like urgency to understand and that were you know majority made up of young men who seemed to have kind of been like formed by the internet and to have like personalities and and politics and senses of humor and senses of truth and reality that were shaped by growing up online So as a person who was spending a lot of time in fandom, it was kind of like, well, I also see on the other side of the internet, like these subcultures primarily made up of of young women or, you know, other groups that we aren't seeing in the (laughs) alt-right necessarily, who are, you know, making these huge seismic changes to internet culture and to the way that we respond to news events and the way we talk about the things we care about and the way we try to get attention for causes that we believe in. And and that was going sort of under-examined while everybody was trying to figure out, like, 
uh-oh, how did the internet break all of the boys' brains? Um. <laughs> yeah. No, I find that so interesting because I want to talk about the Tumblr of it all because, like, I find that I was on Tumblr at maybe the right time in my early 20s where I was kind of... <laughs> Not like indoctrinated, but I'd found <laughs> I'd found my little niche corner of a fandom that kind of, you know, taught me the world of the, the, the language of misogynoir and, you know, mm-hmm. leftist politics and the whole other side of like the, the, the polar opposite of like what broke these boys brains was the side of Tumblr that kind of like built me up and and. And taught me the, like the language to like defend the mistreated black girls on TV shows, like totally. having that kind of language, and it really shaped how the internet operates today. And it doesn't get taken seriously enough for it, in my opinion. But uh, you talk about this a little bit just now. But can you talk a bit more about Tumblr's influence on the growth of modern fandom? Yeah, it's really remarkable. I think looking back, like at how much of kind of the millennial political or cultural worldview like came from Tumblr. That's like where like Occupy Wall Street really took off um, in internet culture and like a lot of conversations around representation and the term problematic, I feel like wasn't used outside of academic discourse until Tumblr. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Your fave is problematic. Yeah. 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 Like, uh, like a lot of those things. And obviously like Tumblr is known for kind of becoming a parody of itself and like some of those conversations getting like going over the top and becoming like puritanical. But I think part of the reason that Tumblr became the fandom platform, which is kind of a coincidence of timing because some of the really popular fan fiction websites, including um, LiveJournal was a big home for fan fiction, had started banning certain types of, of fan fiction stories, like especially ones involving real people. So like pop stars. <laughs> um <laughs> So a lot of a lot of fans who had already been involved in fandom on the internet sort of migrated to Tumblr and made their new home there. At the time, like Tumblr was really unique in the tools that it provided to users and tools that were really useful for fans because they both wanted to have like writing tools, but also um, visual tools. And Tumblr is like where GIF sets were <laughs> were invented. Like that's a unique visual form of Tumblr. So I think Tumblr is kind of the perfect mix between public and private because if you have an interest, you can go there, you can find the community that's interested in the thing you're interested in, and you can like work your way into it over time. Um, But it's not the type of place that's, like, super easy to just, like, drive by, you know? Mm -mm, Um, You have to, like, really invest and find your people. Totally. And there is, you know, culture of anonymity or, you know, using pseudonyms or even if you went by your real full name, there's a culture of, like, delete your blog, start over completely, who cares? Like try on a completely different fandom or a different subculture or a different aesthetic or a different identity. Um, so I think it felt a lot safer. Yeah. So the book has all of these great examples of how different fandoms influence how the internet evolved. Uh, 
you have like, like there's a like, Grateful Dead fan group was one mm-hmm. and like the very first kind of forums on the web and young women contributed to thousands of boy band fan pages in the 90s. Like I was very invested in certain GeoCity websites about NSYNC yeah. when I was 11. But this book is like heavily informed by your own One Direction fandom and how 1D fans had like molded different parts of the internet to their own use. And so what was important about using the One Direction fandom as the focal point of your book? Well, so I was personally involved in the One Direction fandom. So it was both (laughs) that like I was naturally more interested in One Direction fans and like already knew like a lot of things that they had gotten up to that would that would be hopefully interesting to other people. But also like fandom is so specific and there's so much context around like the little divisions and each separate event in, in every single one that I think like it just wouldn't have worked for me to say, well, you know, K-pop fandom is the is the one everyone's talking, that's what everyone's talking about now. I'm, I'm going to write about that because I would have had to just like, completely just parachute in like the book is focused on on fans shaping internet culture but I think there's also sections in there that are more about what role like fandom plays in contemporary life in general and it was really important for me to touch on my personal experiences in order to make that sort of less abstract Mm -hmm. and less like speculative or academic Funnily enough, one of my friends mentioned that she had one of the bigger um, One Direction tumblers when she was a teenager. Oh my God, amazing. But then she deleted everything. Um, but I just wanted to read this to you because I was like, I'm reading this book. I was talking like, I'm reading this book. And it's all about like all these specific fandom moments. And she wrote, like, I wish I didn't delete all my blogs, LMAO. When I was fully in the 1D Tumblr scene, I would have willingly submitted myself to be studied by sociologists and neurologists alike. <laughs> because being given an inkling of social power in that hive mind environment running on a steady engine of teenage girl hormones, it was absolutely an insane time. Oh, my God. Wait, that's incredible. I would love to have spoken to her because that is so true, like people would kind of establish their own little, like, fiefdoms in Tumblr fandom. Yeah. Coming up, why fandom is always a little more complicated than you might think. Stay with us. I was so fascinated by the discussion of the Black Harrys Mm -hmm. and how now as a fan... We want more than just music from our pop stars, but we also want representation. And they were selected to represent them. And now the fans want to recoup on their investment. Yeah. Yeah. There was, um, so Allison Gross, who's a fandom researcher who wrote her dissertation about Harry Styles, wrote like a really amazing paper back in 2017 or 2018 about Black Harry Styles fans who, um, you know, really wanted him to participate in Black Lives Matter and uh, express his support of it on stage, which they felt, you know, was particularly a reasonable request because he was so outspoken about supporting the LGBTQ community and about supporting women and sort of like making these pronouncements at the beginning of his concerts about 
it being an inclusive space and like wanting everybody to really feel like themselves at his shows. Black Harry's, that's the kind of title that the group has taken on. Um, the way that Alison Gross presented it in her paper, it was kind of like a, almost like a populist political movement. Like, yes. um, you know, fans feel like we found this person, we selected this person, we believe in him. We like believe that he basically does represent us. We are just trying to make sure that he is actively representing us. And like as his fans, as the people who have like um, created basically the meaning of his career and his art, like we should also be creating his political meaning. And, you know, Harry Styles did eventually, you know, start publicly talking about Black Lives Matter and, and eventually went to some marches in the summer of 2020. But I think it is still kind of a fraught conversation within the fandom because you know, there are white fans who are very defensive about, well, he's a pop star, not a politician. And Black fans who are saying, like, no, like, we're part of this fandom. This is this is part of basically part of, of what he has implicitly promised by explaining that the purpose of his art and his persona is to make his fans feel included. So this is this is part of that. A fangirl can be viewed as this monolith, especially with with One Direction as like these cishet teenage white girls. And you are very intentional about including, you know, queer fans, black fans, cishet male fans. Love that. Um, And even women in their 40s. And why, like, why was it so important to showcase these quote unquote perceived outliers? Yeah, I thought, um, so I spoke to it for the book, um, Jessica Pruitt, who is a researcher who wrote, um, has written a couple of papers actually about um, lesbians in One Direction fandom specifically. Mm-hmm. And I felt like she explained it so well, because first of all, obviously, like, I think it's important to just tell the truth of the story. And it's not just, <laughs> it's like all these different people are in fandom. So like, as a journalist, it's just my kind of like literal responsibility <laughs> to reflect that. But she also explained it as kind of like if if fandom isn't just about being like a screaming hormonal teenage girl who wants to like make out with the boys in the band, like if there are all of these different groups that like don't conform to that in the fandom, then that is like useful to know because that helps you understand that like all fandom is more complicated than just, oh, I like Harry's so cute. I love him. I want to kiss him or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, showing the range of, of life experiences that can be kind of refracted through fandom and can find structure through fandom is, is helpful in understanding even like for me, obviously, I was, like, a little bit more of, like, the the trope of a One Direction fan, even though I was probably, like, slightly older than most people would expect. Yeah. But I was a teen. I was 19. Um, I, like, lived in a suburb. I, like, thought the boys were cute, and that was certainly part of it. But, like, I think, personally, I think that my story with fandom is much more complicated than just thinking Harry Styles was cute. And I think that's true for everyone, and that was, like, what was so fun about talking to fans is that like you literally ask them one question and they have so many (laughs) so many interesting things to say that are really unique more than just like oh my god he's so cute like nobody I feel like basically nobody even said that (laughs) or if they did it's like it's like it's reflected it's it's like as an aside like yeah and they were cute you know Uh, (laughs) 
Okay, this is something in my whole like fangirl life. It's this thing that I've um, tr been trying to reconcile and it's still hard for me that there's this looming contradiction with being a fangirl where mm -hmm. it's empowering for the fangirl to, you know, love this person or thing. But because there is, it's, it's a very hive minded, like quote unquote, us versus them enterprise. Yeah. The enemy tends to be other girls. There's an example that you put in the the book that kind of blew my mind. I knew nothing about it was Baby Gate. Yeah. And I had like, if you don't mind <laughs> explaining like what that moment was about, because I think that really encapsulates this kind of blinding allegiance almost to a fault. Yeah, totally. A pretty famous like fandom conspiracy theory in that came out of One Direction in the 2010s was uh, Larry Stylinson, which started out as sort of a sh as a ship. Like, you know, wouldn't it be great if these guys were in love? Some people thought they really were in love. And it wasn't a ridiculous theory because they were kind of always like falling all over each other. They were very like rambunctious, <laughs> affectionate boys. <laughs> and in that, in that way, it was totally harmless. But, um, you know, as the years went on, as like Harry Styles had various girlfriends who were in the public eye, as, you know, as it became clear, like they were kind of drifting apart and sort of trying to make an effort to say, no, we're not in love. Some fans really doubled down on this story that they were being forcibly closeted by management. So the kind of like logical assumptions that came out of insisting on that belief got a little bit dark because it was like any, now any woman who's seen with Harry Styles is like a paid plant and a gold digger and like all of these terrible misogynistic tropes. Um, and then, you know, Louis Tomlinson later, he had a, a fling with this makeup artist from Los Angeles and she got pregnant pretty much immediately. It was like, she staged this. Uh, let me chart out her menstrual cycle and prove that she's lying. Wait, uh, what? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Then it was like the baby's a doll. And then later, once it became clear that the baby was not a doll because it could walk and talk, it was, you know, it's a paid actor or it's someone else's baby. Like it's not, it's it's still not Louis' baby. And And there's always kind of this like moral superiority that people could cling to because if you argued with them, if you said what you're doing is dangerous and wrong, it would be it's homophobic to, to say that. And then sort of like counterintuitively, some of the arguments in favor of baby gate were quite homophobic in themselves because it would become like, Oh, well, here's proof that Louis is gay. Look at the way he's holding his, his wrist or something, you know? Oh. Um, <laughs> but something I was surprised about when I was researching baby gate was like, when I was like actually talking to people who were involved, I realized that it was actually extremely painful for people in the fandom because friendships were ended over this. Hmm. It like really divided the fandom in half. And then the denial of reality was sort of kind of a poison and people could take any denial and flip it to be the opposite of what it was. Everything was in code. Everything was symbolism. Everything fit into the narrative, even if it seemed not to, which is I think pretty familiar if you've looked at any internet conspiracy theories oh for sure like even right now 
this, you know, this kind of formula of conspiracy, just like fans see like a rich, famous man and they villainize uh, their female partner or yeah. or the idea of like, what even is truth? Yeah. Like, has that percolated out of fandom into wider online life? Yeah, I think it's, like, a characteristic, uh, unfortunately, of, of, like, really intense online community is that there comes to be, like, these sort of incentive structures where whoever can notice something that no one else has noticed, whether it's, like, a secret symbol or a secret gesture that you can slow down and zoom in on. Obviously, we saw this recently with the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trial. Like, there becomes an incentive to be the person who finds these things. And it is, like, this kind of big participatory puzzle. And I think that can be really exciting for people. And then the way that I've seen specifically, like, fandom conspiracy thinking reach out into broader internet discourse is this sort of, like, wedding the theory to like an ostensibly progressive social cause. So with Babygate, it was, we're fighting homophobia because we're we're going to like free these boys from their secret life and this like horrible uh, prison that they've been forced into. Mm-hmm. And then with, um, we saw recently with the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp story, this is like a misogynistic smear campaign that's being framed as, no, we're actually, like, we are supporting Me Too by drawing attention to male victims of abuse or by tearing apart the story of this woman who is lying because she's actually the one who's damaging the credibility of real victims or something. That, like, moral conviction that excuses all kinds of misogynistic vitriol or invasion of privacy, that I think was really born from Tumblr conspiracy thinking. Yes. Up next, how fandom can both be empowering and exploitative. Stick around. I think from the inside and from from the outside, like I feel like fangirls are equal parts ridiculed and exploited for their labor. Uh-huh. And so I think that there's a way that I think a lot of young fans kind of know know that now, but I don't know if they knew that then. Like, how did the internet during the One Direction era kind of highlight the ways in which that, you know, fangirls were being kind of exploited, but also ridiculed? Yeah, I think because like One Direction was, I think they've been called like the internet's first boy band. They found global success. Um, At the same time that young people were joining social media platforms like Twitter um, and Instagram for the first time. So I think it was sort of a dual learning experience for fans who are already kind of, they're prompted by the amount of time that they're spending on this to sort of think about why they're doing that. And I think a lot of them do think about that deeply. And so you've got these sort of like twin venues of exploitation. You're like, I understand that I am making money for Twitter by sitting here all day long tweeting about Harry Styles. And I also understand that I'm making money for the entertainment industry by sitting here, you know, waiting to be led into Ticketmaster so that I can spend $600 on concert tickets or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think like, obviously everybody is, everybody who uses the internet or like, purchases things uh, (laughs) is participating in the same systems, but maybe like 
it's a little bit less in their face and you don't have to think about it quite as much. Mm-hmm. So I think fan, like fans are pretty aware of those things and they have kind of a give and take or like love and hate relationship with both industries. Like fans kind of openly resent and distrust the entertainment industry because one, they know they're being exploited, but two, they think that they understand the band and its meaning better than the people who are in charge of the tours and the music videos and the whatever else, which is why fan- One Direction fans tried to buy One Direction out of their recording contract. Wait, they tried to buy <laughs> 1D out of their their contract? Yeah, a couple of times there was like campaigns that were basically like, well, there are millions of us. So if we each gave $5, we would have $80 million. <laughs> we could just... Uh, you know, set one direction free. I can see the vision. Yeah. I Yeah, I respect the vision too. Um, and then similarly with social media, like fans have this like love-hate relationship with platforms too because they like understand more about them. They like have way more direct conflict with the rules than, than the regular Twitter user. Like you see mm-hmm. fan accounts get suspended and banned all the time for various reasons. Like probably often because they're like harassing people or telling them to like off themselves but also because they will be like tweeting things they don't own the copyright to or like they're they're always kind of bending the rules and like facing consequences which is why the phrase like one direction ruined my life is like a popular fan joke like they're kind of referring to this like ridiculous situation they've been placed in why are we as fangirls so desperate to have our lives ruined (laughs) um yeah I mean I guess there's like probably like sort of like a highfalutin like religious metaphor about the like (laughs) thrills of devotion and like surrender that I could get into but I also think like part of the reason that people started calling themselves like One Direction trash or saying One Direction ruined my life or writing like really kind of creepy fanfic in which Harry Styles is like murdering you or whatever I think part (laughs) of that is like (laughs) um like fans are aware as we were talking about before that fandom has been thoroughly commodified and I think part of it is like kind of wiggling away from that and be like and being like no like I'm if if you're gonna make my fandom into this thing you can sell back to me like how about I do something freaking weird like let me see you sell back to me my fan fiction about Liam Payne cutting my collarbone out of my body like good luck with that (laughs) you know (laughs) and then similarly with calling yourself trash or saying One Direction ruined my life like that's just a way of kind of like, I guess, reclaiming the like edginess or at least the like subversion of fandom and being like, yeah, we're freaks. Like we're doing something weird. Uh, <laughs> and like, that's part of why it's fun. Caitlin, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk with me. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for, for reading it. This is really a good time. Thanks again to Caitlin Tiffany. Her book, Everything I Need I Get From You, is out now. All right, this episode was produced by Liam McBain and edited by Jessica Mendoza and Quinn O'Toole. We had engineering help from Stu Rushfield. Of course, come back here for more It's Been a Minute on Friday. For that, we want to hear the best thing that happened to you all week. Record yourself and email the file to us at ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. All right, until Friday, thanks for listening. I'm B.A. Parker.